Do me a favor, give Jesus some praise this morning. I'm, I'm over here in the corner. Yeah, all right. You got an hour of sleep, an extra hour of sleep. You can do better than that. Come on. You're awake. That's right. All right. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being here. My name is Adam Harold. My uh, adorable wife, Tanya, and I have the privilege of leading this church called The Refuge. We are a team, and I can't do it without her. She can't do it without me on most days. So uh, thank you so much for being here today. Today we are in week four of a series that we're calling The Prodigal. It's a series about the prodigal son, which happens to be my favorite Bible story in all of Scripture. Um, it is found in Luke chapter 15. So you can turn in your Bibles to, to Luke 15, and uh, we're going to get into uh, verses 20 through 24 in just a moment. But quickly, I want to do a little bit of a review. This is week four. It'll be a six-week series. Week one, we talked about how... The, the whole reason that Jesus is telling the story, you have to, you know, when, when you look at Scripture, hopefully you ask, why? Like, why is this there? What is this telling me about God? And so uh, week one, we talked about the why, why Jesus is telling the story. Every week, if, if you're new here, every week, every message that I give, I try to give one big idea. The big idea for week one was rejoice, Jesus receives sinners. You see, the reason he's telling the story is because a group of Pharisees, religious people, come to Jesus and they're complaining, hey man, you say you're from God and you're eating with these awful people. And so he goes on to tell three parables. A parable is... Um, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it's, it's, a, it's a fictitious story. I think it's funny that my favorite Bible story of, of all time is a fictitious story. I tell my wife it's because I'm a romantic, uh, because I like novels and because I like um, f fictions more than um, whatever the opposite of fiction is. So... <laughs> So week one, rejoice, Jesus receives sinners. The reason he's telling this is because we should rejoice, Jesus receives sinners, because I'm a sinner. I don't know about you. This week, I remind, I'm reminded every week that we come to, to church, I rem, I'm reminded, man, I need this. I, I'm not here for God. I'm here because I need this. I'm a sinner. And week two, we finally got to the story of the prodigal. And we talked about the big idea then was that God grants us freedom, even freedom to reject his love. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, God, you are crazy. Some might call it reckless that you grant me freedom to reject you. That's how much you love me. Week three, which was last week, 
we talked about the prodigal being desperate. He was amongst pigs. He was like, and, and pigs, um, so we have a, a guy that, that goes to church here. He's gone to church here for a while. His name's Alpi. Many of you may know him. Um, he is from Turkey. He came up to me last week at the end of service, and he said, Adam, you have to communicate to people how awful pigs are in the Middle East. He's like, we despise them. They're disgusting. They just roam around the streets, and they're nasty. The prodigal finds himself amongst pigs in the midst of a famine. He's desperate. And he, in his desperation for food in his stomach, right? We said that desperate times can lead us to repentance, but the most important thing is, is the, the genuine act of repentance, which we'll talk about today. His desperation just led him to wanting food. And so in his desperation for food, not for restoration with the Father, his desperation for food caused him to think of this one speech with three parts. He says, amongst pigs, he says, I know, I'll go home and I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and you, number one. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, number two. Number three, make me a hired servant, he thought that the only way that he would be welcomed back home was if he would serve the father to pay him back. And I talked about how oftentimes we think that we just have to do good in order to pay God back for our sins. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful this morning that we don't have to be good enough to pay God back because I could never be good enough to pay God back. Last week's big idea was that God's desire for us is to be sons and daughters, not servants. He doesn't want just a bunch of slaves and servants that do whatever he asked them to do. He wants sons and daughters to do it because they know the Father loves them. Today is week four. I've got good news for you today. The good news is the prodigal comes home. So if you haven't been here, the big thing, some of you might be sitting here thinking, what did this prodigal do? You might not know the story, and that's okay. I want you to know, if you don't know the story, it's completely okay. I don't want to ever assume that you know God's word. And so this kid, this punk kid, says to his dad, Dad, I want my share of your property now. Before his father was dead, we talked about in week one, this was a death wish for his father. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. How many of you know that's not good? And so the father grants him, gives him this share of, of his property, and, and he goes and he lives amongst a, a foreign nation called Gentiles, and he wastes his money in wild living. We talked about that last Sunday. So here we are in verse twenty of Luke chapter 15. You can follow along in the YouVersion Bible app today. Um, if you want to uh, see all of today's notes, they're available 
right there. The screens tell you how to find that. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Let's begin reading there. It says, so he returned to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and he kissed him. His son said to him, pay attention, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, quick, bring me the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with this feast for this son of mine. was dead, and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. In his book, The Cross and the Prodigal, Dr. Kenneth Bailey says or calls this chapter that, have, that include verses 20 through 24, he calls it, the shattering confrontation. But I ask you this morning, what's shattered? Is it the relationship between the father and son, or is it the cultural norm of the day? Is it what people expected to happen? In verse 20, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with compassion, love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, on the surface, we think to ourselves, well, yeah, of course this dad who hasn't seen his son in who knows how long didn't know if he would ever see his son again. Of course, he runs to his son. Of course, he embraces him. Of course, he has love and compassion for him. But again, in the West, we miss it. We don't understand what's going on here. The son would have expected the dad to sit at home and wait his arrival. After making his way through the village, as soon as the village realizes, remember from last Sunday, as soon as the village realizes that the son wasted his money amongst the Gentiles, the thing that was awaiting for him culturally was known as the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza ceremony was when the whole village would come out of their houses because they see this punk kid that wasted his money amongst Gentiles, that the, a group of people that they hated. As soon as they realized that this ceremony would commence, people would come out of their house, houses with clay pots held over their heads, and they would throw them at his feet as they yell, you are cut off, meaning that he's been cut off from the entire village. Not just the dad, but also 
the village. The boy would be forced, after the Kazaza ceremony, he would be forced to sit outside his family's house, the gate of their house. Because I don't know if you picked up on this yet, but his dad is loaded with money. They are rich. They're wealthy. And so he's forced to sit outside the gate and not come in while the father waits inside asking himself, do I want to forgive him? Do I want to restore things? Is that what I want? And the father has a choice to go out to the son at, sitting at the gate. But if he goes outside, the son expects his dad to be angry. I would use another word there, but that wouldn't be appropriate for church. He would be angry. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. This is what the son expects to happen. And no less, the Pharisees expect Jesus to tell the story in this way. But Jesus came, ladies and gentlemen, to change culture. He came to change religious culture. You see, the son thought that he could manipulate the father into welcoming him back in to his house. Isn't that what we do with God? We think that we can be good enough to manipulate God into thinking that we're good enough for him to welcome us into his kingdom. He thought he could manipulate him. But something happens. The way Jesus tells the story is the father's heart is so broken for the son by his rejection of the father's love that every single day the father waits and walks out to the porch and he looks, is he coming? My guess is that he probably stayed outside on the porch all day long while the sun was up waiting for his son to come home, brokenhearted. He sits there and he waits for him to come back. The Greek word used for the word run here is it's actually the word dramon. Dramon is a technical term that describes a race in a stadium or a coliseum. It's a race. The Apostle Paul uses the word dramon in many of his, in his writings to talk about the race of life. You've run the race well, right? Paul talks about that. And um, the word dramon means to race. So the father, when he leaves the porch, he races to his son. The father, filled with love and compassion, races to his son. The thing I love about the prodigal son's story is that it includes both God incarnate and God atonement, which I'm going to talk about those two things in just a moment. The father leaving the porch is the incarnation. Do you know what the incarnation is? 
the incarnation is what we celebrate next month on December 25th when Jesus left heaven to come to earth to take on human flesh in human form so that he could die for our sins, which is the atonement. Jesus coming to earth is the father leaving the porch. Isn't that insane? The depths of this story. But that's not all the father does. Because it also includes the atonement, which is when Jesus died for our sin. Culture tells us that this is probably the first time in 40 years that the father has run. 40 years. And that the cultural norm was that men over the age of 25 did not run. Men didn't run. And the reason men didn't run is because, I don't know if you realize this about the Bible times, but they didn't wear blue jeans. Men didn't. They wore gowns. By leaving the porch, the Father displays the incarnation, which is Christmas. By running, he displays the atonement, which is Easter. This is the best Christer story in the Bible. Creaster, Christmas, Easter. Don't be a don't be a creaster, right? Okay. It's it's early. Men didn't run over the age of 25 because they wore gowns. And fellas, I don't know if you've ever tried to run in a dress. But it's difficult. In order to run in a dress, what do you have to do? Yeah, girls, you know, you have to hike it up. You have to, you have to pull up your gown, your, your dress, so that your legs can move freely. As the father picks up the gown, he exposes his undergarments for the entire village to see. Because he knows that he has to get out in front of the Kazaza ceremony. And the town would have been waiting for the son. And they would have wanted to hear how he spent the money. So the father gets out in front of the entire village. Most likely the entire village is there and they see him exposing himself as he runs to his son. One thing that believers must grasp is in order to overcome sin in our lives, is that when God atoned for our sins, he took on the shame of our sin. And every time we sin, we place ourselves back amongst pigs. We don't belong with pigs. We belong in the house with the Father as sons. When we live in our shame, the shame of our sin, of what we did wrong, we place ourselves in the pig pen. That's not where we belong. 
because our God runs to us, exposing himself on a cross. I can't help but to think that as Jesus later on hangs on the cross, exposed for the world to see, naked on a cross, that some Pharisees walked by, some religious people walked by, and they thought about the Father as he exposes himself, taking on the shame of the Son. Once the Father gets to the Son, he embraces him. The Bible says, with love and compassion, he leaves the, the porch, and he runs to his Son, but when he gets to him, he embraces him. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. When he kisses him, the Greek word there indicates that he kissed him over and over and over again. The son begins the speech but he leaves off the last part. He says, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But that's where he ends. That's where it stops. He drops the last part. Many theologians will argue that the father interrupted the son. I don't believe the father interrupted the son because that would lack repentance. The, the son drops off the last part he doesn't say, make me your servant, because he realizes after seeing the father leaving the porch and running to him, he sees how much the father loves him, and he realizes, I don't have to work for this. My dad loves me. In doing this, the son places his destiny in the father's hands. Can you imagine being amongst the person that you know you've hurt? You know they're hurt by you. And you place yourself in their hands, giving them the choice to do with what, what they want to with you, knowing that you've caused them so much pain. This is repentance. The big idea for today, the one thing that I want to communicate to you, and it's something that God just slapped me upside the head with this week. It's this. True repentance hands over all control to the Father. the father that you hurt so much by your sin. True repentance is handing over all control to the father. Remember in week one, we said that repentance is not work which earns your rescue. 
Repentance doesn't earn your rescue. Repentance is when the sinner accepts the fact that they're found. In order to accept the fact that you've been found, you have to agree to allow the shepherd to carry you home. You have to give control to the shepherd. He, he has the right to kill you where you sit, to kill you where you lie, or he can pick you up and carry you home. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that God doesn't kill you where you lie. He picks you up. And he carries you home to be with him. But it requires giving him control. Knowing the fact that he could kill you. But he doesn't. Because that's not who he is. That's not what he does. This is what the son does by not saying the last part of the speech. He gives control to the father. The thing that God taught me about repentance this week is that repentance is always an act of surrender. It's an act of surrender, giving up control. Look at verse 22, Luke 15. But his father said to his servants, quick, Bring me the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and, a, and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I have a friend, Brian, that pastors a church in Houston, Texas. You guys have met Brian. If you've been coming to church uh, here for the last six months, he's been here in the last, last six months or so. Um, Brian has taught me a lot about discipleship and what discipleship looks like. And one of the things that he's taught me is the importance of sitting across from someone to read Scripture. This is what, what we do in my Bible study that I do every Friday night. We literally sit there and read Scripture with each other, and we discover things about God with each other, and it's amazing because when I read scripture by myself, sometimes I miss things that I don't get when I read with someone else. It's the beauty of discipleship. I believe it's how God wants his word to be read with people. And so Brian tells me this story, and I remember, so one of the things that he likes to do with people in discipleship is he likes to read the story of the prodigal son. He's got a few key Bible stories that he, that he reads. And uh, when he was, he, he told me this story, I remember when I was reading it with him, I thought, man, I've read Dr. Kenneth Bailey's book about the cross and the prodigal. I'm going to teach Brian so much in this session, right? And he said to me, when I, when I, and I even told him that, and um, he said, you know, I thought that I was going to teach this young lady that I sat across from a lot about this story because she was going through a lot. She was really struggling with, with things in, in her life. I'm not going to get into the details of what she struggled with. 
But I remember getting to the part of the story where I always like to ask the question, where do you see God? What do you see about God in this story? Except this time, instead of asking about God, I asked her about the Father. What do you see about the Father in the story? And he said, she said something to me that absolutely rocked my world. And I want you to know it rocked my world too. This young lady, I don't know how old she was, struggling in life, looks at Brian. She says, I love how the father never asked the son where he was. He never says, son, you smell like pigs. Where you been? He doesn't say, what have you been doing? What did you do with my money? He doesn't ask that. Notice, that's the thing that the village would ask. That's the thing that other people would ask. Not the father. The father doesn't care about what you've done to break his heart. All he cares is that his heart is broken. It reminds me of the thing that I said last week. Stop asking if it's wrong and start asking, does it break my father's heart? Don't ask if it's a sin. Ask if it breaks my dad's heart. So the, the father in the story, I love how when the father responds to the son, notice he doesn't talk to the son first. Who does he talk to? He talks to his servants. He's, it, do, it doesn't say, verse 22, but the father said to his son. It says, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring me the finest robe. And he goes and he tells him to get three things, a robe, a ring, and sandals. All three things have significance. You see the robe. In fact, he says the finest robe. Pop quiz. Who does the finest robe in the house belong to in this story? You all know it. It belongs to the father. Because the father would have the finest robe. It would be the father's robe that they go and they get. Now, this will play a factor in the story later on that we're going to talk about next Sunday. That's cliffhanger number one. The robe belongs to the father. Number two, the ring. This ring wasn't just any ring. The Greek word used here is the word, doc, uh, I got I to gotta slow down to say it, doctilios. The word doctilios is the only, it's only used in this verse, Luke chapter 15, verse 22. Other places in scripture, it talks about a ring, but it doesn't use the specific, the form of this Greek word being doctilios. And one of the things that Dr. Bailey says is the reason is the type of ring that is used. It wasn't just any ring for his finger. 
It was the signet ring for the family. You know what a signet ring is? A signet ring would have the family crest on it. The family crest in Bible times was used to make purchases, especially that of property. <laughs> now, those of you that have been here the last couple of weeks, who does the rest of the property belong to at this point? The older brother. No wonder the older brother is so upset that the father receives his brother and, wait, trust him with his older brother's possessions? No wonder he's so mad. The ring is significant. But then we get to the sandals. And the sandals probably have the most significance, but it's the easiest to explain. Because sandals were worn by sons, slaves, servants would go barefoot. The father is saying, not only are we in relationship with the robe, not only do I trust you with the ring, but you are my son with the sandals. Upon the son's return home, he probably wouldn't have been carrying much. Dr. Bailey points out that the only thing in his hands would have been filthy rags. And it reminds me of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 that says we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds like they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall and our sins Sweep us away like the wind. The best things that I have to offer God are like filthy rags. I'm not going to get into the Hebrew of the word filthy rags there. Because it is filthy. Now let me ask you a question. A real heartfelt question today. After receiving this kind of love from his father, how do you think the son acted? Do you think that he ever said to him again, Dad, I want my, my, my now I want my older brother's share of, his, of, of the property. <laughs> do you think he said that? No. Do you think he ever wanted to break his father's heart again? Absolutely not. But why? Why did he not want to break his father's love again? It's because of the love that he experienced. Grace has a radical way of transforming a person. 
In fact, my guess, and it's just a guess, but my guess is after receiving the father's love, he now is able to forgive his brother who stands outside the party, not willing to come in. Now to conclude, I wanna talk about that party just for a minute. The dad orders the fattened calf as my buddy George Bailey says at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. I'm just warming up for Christmas, y'all. Kill the fattened calf. This would have been prime beef. Feasting on grain. The best of the best. And that's what his dad wants to give him. My God gives me the best of the best. When all I give him is filthy rags. The question that we must ask to conclude this morning is who is the party for? Think about it this week. And that's cliffhanger number two. Who's the party for? Stand on your feet. I want to pray with you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I hope that you're falling in love with this story the way that I have. Because it includes who God is. And as you fall in love with God's word, you fall in love with the God that spoke his word. fall in love with the father that runs to you, races to you, taking on your shame. You don't have to be ashamed of those rags. But you have to realize that me coming to God requires control to God, not to me. There are things in our lives that we just have to say, God, it's yours, not mine. Repentance is an act of surrender. Paul writes and he says, repent and turn to God. Repentance is, is turning to God, it's, it's giving him control. leads me to this question. One that we all have to ask. Who has control? Who has control of your life? There are things in my life, ladies and gentlemen, I know this is going to shock you there are things that I like to control. That I just have to say, God is yours, not mine. It's yours. And I think one reason why we struggle with worry so much is because we like to 
work for our salvation. We have to realize it's all God's. And the best place for us to be is in his hand. As a son and a daughter, not as a servant. In a moment, we're going to open the doors to my right, your left. There will be people in the room there that want to pray with you. If you have a burden that you're carrying today, they want to pray with you. But I ask you today, who has control? Have you given it all to him? The one thing that we must give to him is our sin. Because it's our sin that breaks his heart. And as we give him control of our sin, he wipes it away. But that wiping away of our sin cost him his son, Jesus. If you want to give God your sin today and come into relationship with him, I want to ask you to say this prayer with me. And after you say this prayer, because the prayer is not magical, it's the belief, the putting into practice. And the way I want you to put it into practice today is I want you to tell one of us. Find someone with a lanyard on. Tell us in the room that we open the doors to. That's one reason why we open those doors so that you can tell somebody that you said this prayer. Write it down on the card that's in front of you. Drop it in the black box. If you take that card to that room, they've got a Bible they want to give you. This is the prayer. God, I know I've broken your heart. And I know I've sinned. God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. Bring me back into relationship with you. I give you control. Realizing that I can't work for it. I don't have to work for it. Because your son Jesus, who died on the cross for my sin, he's already worked for it come into my life. Transform me from the inside out. Make me new, giving me a new identity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer, tell somebody about it. I love you. I'm so glad you came to the 8 o'clock service this morning. Are you glad you came to the 8 o'clock service this morning? Hey, we're going to sing one more song, then we'll be dismissed. I love you.